Our Father, we can sing with such assurance about rocks and sinking sand and all the like because there was a time when many of us stood on sinking sand. Many of us had built a life that was based on success and we found that it, it unraveled underneath us. We built a life on pleasure and that too was something that could not support our weight. We built a life based on, on even trying to find some kind of human applause. And that too has unraveled underneath us. And then somebody told us. Somebody told us that there was forgiveness from God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we found ourselves spread eagle on a rock. We found ourselves laying hold of Him who is the only one who has built underneath us a lasting, firm footing, a foundation that has not yet given way and has promised will never give way. Oh God, thank You. Thank You for opening our eyes to a life that has some solidity to it. Thank You for opening our eyes so that we could see something that heretofore we had not seen. And, and we are people who stand today knowing that our, our performance has not been stellar. We understand that our, our living has been inconsistent and yet, oh God, underneath us is a rock that has not given way, not because we are faithful, but because you are. You have never made a promise that you didn't keep and the one about our souls, the one about eternal life is the one that we hold on to with such tenacity. Because, Father, if you are to ever find a way to forgive us, it will be because not of what we have done, but it will be because of the rock on which we're standing. Jesus Christ, that great rock of offense to the Jew, but for us, life eternal. To every Jew, to every Gentile who embraces that Savior, it is a rock that has provided not only a solid foundation, but a life that is worth living. Thank you, O God. Our Father, we come with a, a mixed bag of need this morning. Some come uh, from a week that was filled with good news and other come, others come from a week that was chock full of bad news. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will hear from us a clear sound of praise no matter what our circumstances. We are, as Paul described, more than conquerors, not because our circumstances are good nor bad, but because of promises you gave us. Oh, God... Might we be a people who learn to live based on promises instead of emotions and feelings. Oh, how guilty we all are. From fear to doubt to insecurity, they all riddle us. Might we, be, might we find firm footing on your promises, Father. Thank you for the privilege to give. It is all ours. You need our money not. But boy, do we need to give it away. Do we ever need to choke and strangle that, that serpent of covetousness that abides in all of us? Oh, how we need to stop buying so that we can start giving. 
We have enough, O God. We have too much. Might our giving reflect that we want to live lives that are significant, not full of toys? Our Father, accept our gifts. They come from hearts that are full of love for you. We are a people who've gathered to worship. We are a people who've gathered to pray. And we will pray, Father, in words that Jesus gave us to pray as we say together, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. We all just... uh, Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts. Acts, right after Romans. And I want to read you just a, a brief portion out of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. Let me tell you, uh, I'm going to only read verses 12 through 16, but there, there, it's an interesting um, uh, story that precedes it. It's a story about Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and as a result about, about a piece of property they had sold and as a result of their lying, both of their lives were taken. Well, this, uh, what I'm about to read, comes right on the heels of that event, that uh, vignette. Uh, with uh, Ananias and Sapphira losing their life, is followed up with these verses, beginning at verse 12, Acts chapter 5. Follow as I read. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever and ever and ever. Um, back on the 11th of February, I, I have made reference to the 11th of February several times uh, since then. And let me just remind you what that was. The 11th of February was the 10-year anniversary of Gracie Van. We've been in business a little over 10 years. And, and on that day, February the 11th, I concluded my sermon, which some of you may recall, I'm sure you probably don't remember very vividly, but I I left you with really two challenges, two things that I want to do as as I close out my ministry uh, um, before retirement, two things that I would like to see happen at Gracie Van. And you might remember that one of them had to do with finances, with resources, with with wherewithal. And 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 I said to you then is that what I want to see us do is take more of our resources and aim them outside of us. That is, um, as soon as we get through this look campaign and and, uh, all that's behind us, what I want to see us do is concentrate on taking a higher percentage each year of our resources and aiming them uh, outside of us, to needs outside of us. And that's going to be um, pretty easily quantifiable. That is, 
we'll know how we're doing with that uh, as we measure percentages and budget figures, etc. Once that, once we begin, it'll be pretty easy to see whether that's really coming true, whether one of that one of those dreams is coming true. All we'll have to do is look at the books. The other thing that I wanted to uh, that I said that I wanted us to see happen among us is to create by God's kindness a climate, an environment. And the word that I used was climate, a climate of evangelism uh, among us. And, and what I mean by that is um, it's, it's kind of a feel, a, a sense, a, a commitment, an interest in, and a commitment to uh, reaching men and women for Jesus Christ. One of my dreams is to walk up and down these halls, as you've just heard Jeff pray, is to walk up and down, down these halls and hear people talking about the people that God has brought across their path that they've had the privilege of sharing Christ with. That's what I mean uh, when I talk about a climate of evangelism. Well, gang, I want to spend our summer, uh, the summer of 2001, I want to begin um, that effort. Now, this is going to be far more difficult to quantify and objectify. Uh, but I want to start uh, with some kind of effort, and this won't be our last, uh, if God allows and, and you allow, uh, I hope to labor for another 15 years. And uh, if we, in, in, of course, those, across those 15 years, we're going to be hearing a lot about this. You'll hear me say a lot of times about this climate of evangelism. And we're just beginning. And um, I, I want to begin this morning, but I just want to assure you that this is, won't be the last time you'll hear about this. This is not some kind of one-shot deal. But as long as you and I have ministry together, I want us to work on it, to strive towards it, where, this, where when people enter our midst, there is a sense that they get that those people are really interested in lost men and women. And, and I, I hope that you can get that kind of vision, that kind of excitement, that kind of a contribution to a climate of evangelism. Now... Um, I, I, I'm, I'm inviting you for the rest of our years together to come with me as you and I fix ourselves on the target that God has given us. And that target is them. I've told you that a hundred times. I know you've heard me say, we do not exist for you. We exist for them. That's why we're in business, ladies and gentlemen. And so I want you to come along with me as we, as we fix our attention on the target that God gave us. And that target is lost, non-Christian men and women. Now, I was given a, a quote recently, um, and it's, a, it's only one sentence, so it won't be hard to listen to, but just listen to this. One gentleman said this, There is a widespread indifference today here's what I really want you to hear. Men do not challenge Christianity. They simply ignore it. There's a widespread indifference, says this man. And men don't challenge Christianity anymore. They don't have to. That's what indifference means. They simply ignore us. Now, now why is that, ladies and gentlemen? Why has, have we come to the place where our culture... Uh, doesn't e ignores us. Why is, why is it that we have so little uh, impact in the marketplace? Well, I'm sure there's tons and tons and tons of reasons. 
But uh, you need to know, uh, I guess for starters, that you and I live in a post-Christian culture. You know, there used to be a day when I was a child, uh, back in the 50s, some of you will remember that, but that this country operated underneath what was called a Christian conscience, a Christian consensus. But that's gone. A Christian conscience, a Christian consensus simply means that people acted like Christians even though they weren't. And that is, they, they, uh, they admired, for instance, the Ten Commandments and obedience to the Ten Commandments, even though they may not have been ever a, uh, a, a one who had laid hold of the God who wrote them. But there was this, this mindset in our culture that honored Christianity, even though this was not necessarily a Christian nation. Well, that's gone, ladies and gentlemen. That's long gone. And I think it's my generation that needs to take credit. That is, in the 60s, we were the ones who started tearing down things and replacing them with virtually nothing. Well, folks, um, I, I'm, I want to suggest to you that um, the reason that the culture is indifferent and that we've passed from a Christian consensus to a post-Christian culture, here's my analysis, for better or worse. I want to suggest to you that it's because the church has failed to recognize what I'm calling a principle of difference. That is, we as a church and the rest of us, naming the name of Christ, have failed to observe a principle of difference. Did you see it in our text? It's in our text, ladies and gentlemen. Did you notice it? This is right after the Ananias and Sapphira event and... And uh, all the apostles are out doing their jobs. And we're told in verse 17 that none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. But that's not where it stops, ladies and gentlemen. Notice it goes on to say, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Now, do you see it, ladies and gentlemen? When, um, back when I was a college lad, uh, I took pilot license, or I took pilot training, and I'm a pilot. I don't know whether you know, you know that, but I don't even know if they still make this airplane. But it's called a push-pull. It's a funny-looking aircraft. Have you ever seen it? It's got a propeller right out in the front, and then right behind the cab, where you sit, that is where the people fly, you know, there's another propeller. There's a propeller in the front and a propeller in the back. And it's called a push-pull. There's a propeller that pushes it. I don't know which is which. I don't know whether the back one, but, but uh, both propellers perform a function. One of them pushes the airplane and the other pulls the airplane. Well, gang, I'm suggesting that that kind of principle existed in the early church. Do you notice what happened? There were some people that looked at the church and said, oh my goodness, I would never dream of being a part of that organization. Look at it. None dared they wouldn't dare join up with the church. They wouldn't dream of it. But while that is going on, simultaneously, at the same time, multitudes were being added. There were some who were being drawn irresistibly and others being repelled. All at the same time. There was a push, and there was this most marvelous 
pull. And I, I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the reason that there was in that church a push-pull was because of this principle of difference. That the church was so incredibly different than her culture that she simply could not be ignored. She was so profound in her very existence that some looked at her and said, <laughs> Not me. I'm not, you know, people get hurt in that room. You lie over there and they're going to dig you a grave. I don't want to be a part of that. And then at the same time, others were saying, I must. I must be a part of those people. I've got to be a part of what's going on in the midst of those people. Back during World War II, when after Hitler had blitzkrieged himself all the way across France and was demanding uh, unconditional surrender by the Allied forces there in the uh, European theater. There were thousands, and, and some of you historians will remember, there were thousands of British and French troops that had dug in along the northern coast of France in some kind of last-ditch effort to hold off the German onslaught. And they were trapped on the beaches of... Dunkirk. You'll remember that story. And they knew that sooner or later that they were about to be obliterated. Well, during that, that period where Hitler was moving closer and closer, there was a group of British soldiers that broadcast this little terse message across the English Channel, and it consisted of three words. The message was simply, and if not. That's all they wrote. And what kind of, what was that? Was that some kind of secret code? No, ladies and gentlemen, it was a reference to a biblical story. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were facing Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. Remember that? And Nebuchadnezzar came and said, okay, here's your last chance. Um, uh, I want you to, you know, deny this God. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, our Lord will deliver us. Um, we're, we're not going to, uh, you know, um, bow down to your gods because our God is able to save us, and He will save us. But if not, we're still not going to serve your gods. Well, that little message across the English Channel, and if not, was a reference to that biblical story. And, and amazingly, astonishingly, this, this oblique message was immediately understood by the, by the British people. And in the days that followed, as you know, you know this to be an historical event, in the days that followed, this ragtag flotilla of, of fishing boats and pleasure cruisers and yachts and, and even rowboats set out across the English Channel of England, or the English Channel, and uh, arrived there on the beaches of Dunkirk and managed to rescue, listen to this, 338,000 Allied troops in rowboats. They weren't all rowboats. But, but the point is, here was a group of soldiers dug in over on Dunkirk. And they were saying, listen, would y'all please come get us? <laughs> but if you don't, it's all right. 
Because we're going to stand and fight. And because that little group of soldiers was so blasted impressive, rowboats rode across the English Channel and rescued 338,000 Allied troops. This really saved the war. Now, my point in all that, ladies and gentlemen, is simply this. If the church ever were to become that impressive, oh my, what might happen out there? If the church were ever to be not like her culture, but so unlike her culture, if she were different. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, they would no longer ignore us. You and I must take blame, or at least part of the blame, ladies and gentlemen, because there is on all of us, including the senior pastor of that church, this subtle pressure to become more and more and more like them. Let's ordain women. Let's say that homosexuality is a normal expression. Let's turn our worship services into nothing more than cheap disco meetings. Let's be like them! And then they'll come. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's just the opposite. It's when we're the most unlike them. Which I think is borne out in Acts chapter 5. Now, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a word of analysis. Could I help you transition with me? This is kind of a poor transition, but what I want to offer you now is assumption, an assumption, and you'll understand as we close. I'm, I'm about to make an assumption, and I want to tell you about it. I want you to know what my assumption is as we begin this summer-long series. I, I think you agree with me that there are very few things that are more exciting than being used by God. You see these people up here and, you know, um, they're going on a medical trip. <laughs> Wanda Lenore's going. <laughs> you know how much medical skill Wanda Lenore has? <laughs> None. She has none. She doesn't have any. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because very few things are as thrilling as sensing that in a small way I'm being used by God and to think that He might use me to lead another somebody to Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's, that's thrilling stuff, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm convinced Here's my assumption. I'm convinced that in your heart of hearts, you long, you long to have impact on the people who are around you. I believe that about you. I believe that if you're a child of God seated here this morning, you long to have some kind of impact, to make some kind of difference. You know, um, I was a salesman for Procter & Gamble and I sold cake mix and Crisco shortening and Jeff peanut butter and Crisco oil and sometimes bounty paper towels. And um, 
not a, it's a wonderful job, and I, I'm telling you, how many times have I longed to have it back? But um, <laughs> but the thing the thing that struck me as a 23 year old man, I wanted to impact. But it's not only preachers that can do that, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe in fact. Some of you have far more impact than any preacher in this church. But I think there is a desire in you to impact, to make a difference. I want to read you a little something that I found. It's real quick. It's kind of oblique, but it makes a good point at the end. Listen to this. It's been so long since I've seen a burning bush. Some seasons I see them in every desert wash. The magnificence, the miracle, burning and not being consumed. Yet who do I fool? Moses paid dearly for his burning bush, sweaty desert miles and exhausted sweaty tears, all for the dubious blessing of talking with God. What claim have I to a burning bush or to God? I have not even yet learned to remove my shoes. I've learned so much of me, every inch of it is hurt, to see honestly and at length because at first all I could see were the wounds of humanity. I looked for cool, unflawed marble of deity, but found only a heart of flesh. But hearts of flesh are all that God can write on. Write on me, Father. Write on me. My brother and sister in Christ, I think all of you want God to write on you. I think there is burning in your breast a desire to think that the Heavenly Father, the God of all the universe, would use folks like us to expand His kingdom and improve His reputation among that culture who cares so little for Him. That's my assumption. My assumption is that every last blasted one of you Every one of us want to be used somehow to make a mark for Jesus Christ. That's my assumption. I've told you my analysis. That's my assumption. Now, let me close with somewhat of an assignment. I want to make reference to Luke chapter 15. You don't need to go there. You, you, you know and Luke 15 is is the story of the prodigal son. You remember the the boy who went to his daddy and said, give me everything that's mine. He went off to the faraway country and blew it all. You know that story. Uh, That's a famous story that's contained in Luke chapter 15. But did you know there's two other parables in that, in that, uh, in that, uh, uh, that chapter? There's the parable of the lost coin. There's the parable of the lost sheep. And then it closes off with the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. It has prompted some to call Luke 15 the lost and found department of the New Testament. Because it talks about lost things. A lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. But forget the lost son for a minute. And and very interestingly, it's very unique that Jesus does that. Dedicates a whole chapter of lost things. But you know the story about the lost coin, don't you? The lady has ten coins and she loses one of them. And boy, she turns that house upside down to find it. She sweeps everything. She puts everything outside. Man, she looks in the cracks and the crevices and she kicks over the plants and, and she looks everywhere because she lost that one coin and she wants it back. And then there's that parable about the lost sheep. Guy's got a hundred sheep. Remember that? 
If you don't know this, this is real simple. Just turn to Luke 15. You can read it this afternoon. They're very brief parables. But the, the one sheep is lost. God's got a hundred sheep. So he, he kind of fences up the 99 and heads out to the, to the wilderness to find the other one. You remember? Because I'm telling you, he wants that other hundred sheep, that other, that hundredth sheep back. And uh, here's my point. Three things about those parables. Number one, lost things are very important to the owner. In the mind of the owner, that thing that's lost is, is, is really important. Second observation. Because it's so important, and because that lost thing is so valuable, it will warrant an all-out search. It is so valuable, the lost thing that is, that I'm going to, I'm going to commence a search to find it that will demand a lot of me, but because that lost thing is so valuable, it warrants whatever search I've got to make to go get it. And then finally, when the lost thing gets found, or when the lost thing is finally found, it is a cause of immense celebration on the part of the owner. Now, my brother and sister in Christ, Live with that. Let it sink down into the cracks and the crevices of your soul. Lost things are important to the owner. And they're so important that it warrants an all-out search. And when the search is completed successfully, celebration begins. You ready for that? I hope so, my brother and sister in Christ. Years ago, Becky Pippert, strange kind of name, Becky Pippert. Becky Pippert wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. And in the book, Out of the Salt Shaker, she goes to great extremes to, to, to describe a salt shaker. Now, every one of you have got one of those things in your house. And there it sits. Ours is brown. It's made out of wood. It's got this little rubber stopper on the bottom. And um, every meal, just about everybody around that table grabs that thing and uses it. But the point that Becky Pippert makes is something like this. She said, you know, you've, you've heard of us being called the salt of the earth, the salt of the world, haven't you? We Christians are supposed to be the salt of the earth. She says, if the salt stays in the salt shaker, then the salt shaker is nothing more than a table ornament. It's only when you dump that stuff out that things really begin to happen. And I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, there are a lot of Christians these days who are like a table ornament. Oh, they have the desires. But they're just a nice table ornament. Here's what I'm proposing. For this summer, I want to um, I want to find out how you and I can be irresistible. I want us to I want to do some things that will make us more and more like the church in Acts five. 
I am going to commence today, and well, actually, this is just kind of the introduction, but for the rest of the summer, a series on how to build an irresistible testimony as we try to observe the principle of difference. I'm going to offer you some things across the summer that I hope will make us more and more different and by so doing become irresistible in our testimonies to a lost and dying world. And once we become, once we have those irresistible testimonies, that's when the fun will begin of watching the Heavenly Father use people like us to advance His kingdom. Let me tell you a story speaking of the fun beginning and we're finished. This is a true story. It happened, in fact, I got this out of a newsletter, out of a Chuck Swindoll newsletter years ago. It happened at the University of Southern Cal. And uh, there, uh, there was a professor at Southern Cal, a philosophy professor, who was a deeply committed atheist. And it was his primary goal in one of his classes. It was a, it was a freshman class, but for many majors it was a required class. And it was his stated primary goal during the entire semester to prove that God could not possibly exist. And his students over the years had grown quite afraid of him <clears throat> because he, of course, had gotten pretty good at this, that is, uh, proving that God didn't exist. And so for 20 years, he taught this class. And um, across those 20 years, nobody had had, uh, you know, the guts enough to stand up and, you know, take him on. Um, because they knew what they were up against, and they knew that if they ever stood up, they knew what he was going to do, because it had become common knowledge across the campus. And here's what he did. On the last day of the semester, the last class day of the semester, he would stand in his lecture hall and before 300 students, and he would say, after this semester of proving that God doesn't exist, he would look at his, his students and he says, now, is there anyone... Anyone in this class who still believes that God exists. And of course, over those 20 years, nobody ever stood up. Um, because they knew what was coming next. Because he would say, um, because if you do, you're a fool. And then he, he would do the same thing every year. Uh, he would say, if God existed, he could stop this piece of chalk from hitting the ground and breaking such a simple task. If God existed, he certainly could stop that. And so every year he would take a piece of chalk and he would drop it from above his head and it would hit the concrete floor and it would shatter into uh, dozens of pieces and the students could do nothing but sit there and stare at it. And um, um, most of the students were convinced that God didn't exist, and, but there was, I'm sure, a number of Christians that probably passed through there just wasn't brave enough to take him on. Well, one year, uh, a freshman having to take this class, who was a Christian, decided that he was going to stand fast. He was going to stand for his faith. And so he prayed every morning that the Lord would give him courage to stand for his faith. So, indeed, that fateful day arrived, the last day of the, classes, uh, of the class, and the, um, the professor, after all this semester of wonderful logic, uh, stands in front of the class and says, Is there anybody that uh, believes... That God exists. And this little student, freshman, back in the room, stands up. 
And the professor looks at him and points at him with scorn and says, You fool! You fool! Because if God existed, He could stop this piece of chalk from falling to the ground and shattering into pieces. And at that point, He dropped it. But it slipped out of his fingers, grabbed or, or bounced off of his cuff, ran down the, the pleats of his pants, got caught in his cuff, rolled, got, uh, hit his shoe, and rolled off the front of his shoe onto the floor and rolled away. And he stared at the piece of chalk, looked at the student, and ran out of the lecture hall. And that young man came from the back of the room to the front of the room and for the next few minutes shared with 300 people his faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great story? Ladies and gentlemen, not many of us are going to be able to have stories like that one to tell. But that doesn't mean that we don't have stories to tell. It doesn't mean that you and I can't have stories to tell about how God used us to introduce people to Jesus Christ. Here's where we need to begin, ladies and gentlemen. Simply ask yourself this. What does the non-Christian world know about Christ by looking at me? What does the non-Christian world know about Jesus Christ by looking at me? Well, we're going to give them something to look at. And over the summer, we're going to form, I hope, an irresistible testimony that they can no longer ignore. I want to read you this. Jimmy Latimer gave me this years ago. And I want it to be, I want it to be descriptive of us. Listen. I stay near the door. I neither go too far nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which people walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind people with outstretched groping hands feeling for a door knowing there must be a door yet they never find it. So I stay near the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for people to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing anyone can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and to put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the person's own touch. People die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it. Live because they have they live because they have they they die for the I'm sorry, they live on the other side they live on the other side of it. Live because they have found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stay near the door. My brother and sister in Christ, my desire to see us is to see us develop irresistible testimonies so we can show people right where the door is. Let's pray. 
Our Father, I do pray that you will turn Gracie Van into an, an agency where hope is felt. Where forgiveness is sensed. And where the things of God can be so richly experienced that people will walk away from here with a great sense that they have come in touch with, come into contact with the eternal. And I pray, Father, that you'll use us to do that. Salesmen and scientists and teachers and doctors and students and housewives, use us all. Build within us an irresistible testimony, O God, so that we can have the privilege of showing people how they can get to you. That will be the greatest thrill of our lives. We commit ourselves to that, Father, and we do so in Jesus' name.